0: Welcome to the Artish Plunge podcast, a podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, jobs, and experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. My guest today is Atlanta-based abstract painter Bob Landstrom. Until just a few months ago, Bob spent many years as an electrical engineer in the data center industry while carving out as much time as he could in the evenings and weekends to build his abstract painting portfolio. Innately curious with metaphysics, Bob's primary art medium is pigmented volcanic rock. Yes, volcanic rock. Now Bob's art career has exploded, no pun intended, so that he was able to leave his engineering days behind. Well, except for the aerial swings and pulley systems he has designed for his art studio. Bob shares his love for using the earth as a painting medium, and how his art journey has led to his upcoming NFT Genesis drop. So grab your rock hammer, your field notebook, and a sense of adventure, and let's head to Atlanta to see what Bob is doing in the studio today. Oh, that is... Oh, keep doing that. That is Rice Krispies treats. That is Rice Krispies (laughs) in a bowl. That is Bob likes. He's scraping. I don't know, Bob. What is that?
1: That's me painting.
0: That's you painting. Painting with Rice Krispies. What are you (laughs) painting with?
1: Well, the medium I use is uh, volcanic rock. Volcanic rock. Yeah, so it's... uh, kind of like a sticky gravel that I'm putting onto the canvas and each each grain of the rock is pigmented before it goes on the canvas and I'm applying it with a with a palette knife with a trowel
0: so where well no how did you get started painting with volcanic rock you went into the paint store one day the art store and you said no not acrylic not oil Volcanic rock, that's for me.:
1: <laughs> Well, actually, a um, long time ago, i I painted with liquid media like most people do. And um, at the time, I was pretty deep into studying like metaphysics and ancient civilizations, lost knowledge, things like that. and it got I got the idea that maybe the material that I'm using to paint with could be uh, better aligned with the subject matter that I'm thinking about. So I did a bunch of different experiments, uh, looking at a number of different things, trying different things out, mixing things with paint and and that sort of thing. And um, I guess this was in the early nineties. I was in the American Southwest studying petroglyphs, you know, out in the desert, uh, photographing them and drawing them, that sort of thing. And I was just sort of really struck by the landscape, you know, the landscape is so beautiful out there and the the earth element is just so present, you know? And it was shortly after that that I got the idea of, well, maybe the earth itself is a more meaningful painting medium for me. So I began a number of other different experiments and long story short, I came upon this idea of using volcanic rock and I like the, the idea of volcanic rock because of the, uh, the kind of metaphysical nature of it, the, the state change that's involved. It's liquid when it's in the belly of the earth, and now it's solid in my hand. Mm. So that sort of alchemical yeah. property really resonated with me.
0: Yeah, liquid to solid.
1: I'm an Earth sign. Yes,
0: we've discussed that. I'm an Earth sign, too. That's why I, I knew we would get along this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that state change is really interesting. Um, did you experiment with other kinds of rock before you hit on volcanic?
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, at one point, I, I had this notion of uh, using Earth from wherever I was at on the planet, because I've done a lot of traveling. So I thought maybe I use the the, the dirt from this place and the dirt from that place. And I sp- experimented with that for a while too. But eventually I, I came upon the, the use of this material and I've been working with it so long now I found a number of different ways to, to sort of make it my own. Yeah. And the way I use it now, each grain is individually pigmented before I use it. So if you look across my studio right now, you'll see, a lot of Tupperware bins full of different colors of uh, gravel and different grain sizes of the gravel. And uh, the, the way that I mix colors is that I take a scoop of one, put it in a bowl, mix it. Take a scoop of another, put it in the bowl. A third one, a fourth one. Shake it up, and you know your eye blends the color, kind of like yeah. pointillism. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, a, a giant rock syrup Rock wow. serape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, is volcanic rock porous in the sense, does it absorb the color more so than um, maybe other kinds of rocks?
1: Yeah, it is uh, fairly porous. If you you look at it under a magnifying glass, it's, it's fairly porous. And um, it took a while to figure out how to get it to take the pigment. And the rock reacts to certain pigments better than others, like for example the the cadmium based pigments transfer to the rock pretty well other pigments are really hard to to make it make it work
0: yeah that, that whole um exploration of color and what they're where the color comes from if it's mineral if it's uh, you know chemical based wherever it's coming from is so interesting and makes that makes a lot of sense that that would be an exploration in itself of figuring out which of those combinations would work for the rock form that you're using. So I'm loving this idea of these buckets of mixing color with these different cover- colored petables. And now, so you're gonna put it on to, do you work on board or what kind of substrate?
1: Canvas primarily.
0: Canvas, I find that so fascinating. I would have thought canvas would dip from the weight, but I know from talking to you, you said they're really not that heavy, these pieces.
1: Yeah, it's surprisingly light because, I, again, because of the, I guess the rock is porous. Yeah. You know, it's not really that heavy. Uh, a gallon bucket of of it weighs, I don't know, maybe three or four pounds.
0: That's amazing to me. And did you tell me that you could even roll these canvases up when they're finished to ship them?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can uh, take it. Take the canvas off the stretcher and roll it up. If I need to send it somewhere that way, I prefer not to do that. But
0: yeah, yeah.
1: But but it is very durable, and I've been painting with this medium for a really long time now. At, th- at this point, and I've never seen or heard any of them failing in any way. Yeah. In fact, if you if, if you tried to take it off the canvas, it's really hard to do so. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You've made a lasting uh, contribution to the earth. I, sometimes when I'm using <laughs> resin, I'm like, okay, earth, here it is forever and ever, this piece. But now, yep. so I'm imagining you, so is this, so you work large. For those of you who haven't yet seen Bob's work, and I hope you will go check them out. They're beautiful. Um, they're usually quite large scale. So typically, what's a size for you?
1: A small piece is... Uh, I'd say 36 inches and under. Um, yeah. My sweet spot is four feet or five feet in that area. And I'll do six feet, seven feet, eight feet as well.
0: I learned my sweet spot was how far my arms could reach. And it, when it got past that, it became <laughs> less sweet for me. <laughs> but, and actually, that makes me curious. Do you have uh, an assistant or someone that helps you in the studio at times with these large pieces?
1: no well uh, sometimes I, I need some help getting them on and off the uh the sort of pulley system that i have on my wall to to um, to change the height of them uh, but most of the time that, that i'm painting i'm working horizontally so the canvas is flat either on the floor or on a table and for larger canvases in order to reach the middle of them i have a yoga swing hung from the ceiling and i sort of hang over the painting, and I move the painting underneath me while I fly over top of it.
0: So, for for our listeners, there is a video on your website, I think. Maybe we can give a link to get them straight to it. So fascinating to see this contraption. I can't at all imagine creating. In fact, I can imagine trying to create something like that for myself and splatting in the middle of a painting. But um, <laughs> to me, this is already alluding to sort of your other side of your brain that we'll get into more later. But as an engineer. So and in fact, I actually want to pause just a moment because I want to come back and explore both what you just said, you've got the pulley system on the wall, and you're swinging out over these giant paintings in an aerial contraption. But so I'm I get the benefit of seeing Bob right now. And he's got a desk, um, which is probably not your, your um, work, creating painting desk, but it's a little more orderly. And, and in fact, it has It reeks of engineer, I just have to tell you. So it has this beautiful lamp in the background that's made from, it looks like an old pulley system. I don't know what that is.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is.
0: Yeah, so that's beautiful. Then there's a fantastic photo of what I'm assuming is maybe your dog, the the black puppy. That that was a
1: former dog, yeah, the dog I used to have, yep. Cranston, of
0: course, and then a lovely photo of your wife making a hilarious face, <laughs> um, and a note that looks like it says "I love you." And then there are like maybe five or six books, and I'm and nothing else. Like it's very extremely tidy on this desk. But I'm curious, what books are on there? What's on your desk right now, Bob? Well, I have
1: um, the Hermetica. Okay. I have um, Quadrivium. Okay. Which is a great reference book, by the way. There's a lot of brain candy. In, in this book
0: yeah, I'm, so there's a lot of images in there That all of these will be good links but that one in particular catches my yeah. eye
1: Has have a um, poetry by Rimbaud poetry from Stefan Malarm got um, a book of uh, jokes called Plato and a Platypus Walk <laughs> into a Bar <laughs>
0: So I think books, actually, you know, maybe this should be something I do with everyone, but that's such an interesting collection and I think very telling of already who (laughs) we're talking to here. So um, we'll be sure to include some of those links because some of those were new to me. Um, But meanwhile, back in the studio, hovering over your painting in an aerial contraption. Mm -hmm. So first, how did you create? So you say you have a pulley system on the wall. What is that? How did you create that? Uh,
1: It's actually... um... It's a set of four pulleys. It's designed to hold the canvas essentially from from the floor, move it from a horizontal to a vertical position, and then raise and lower it uh, as I need to in order to paint with it.
0: And was that your of your own design? That's fabulous.
1: Yeah, kind of. Yeah, you can buy the pulleys anywhere. You know
0: I know but I need the I need the plans Bob so I do need to see this little side vessel for you coming into play and then describe in a little more detail this aerial contraption and what gave you the idea for it
1: well the, the aerial contraption is really very simple it's literally a yoga swing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the uh, the hooks are in the ceiling uh, and, and when I need to use it I'll you know, take it off the shelf and hang it on the ceiling and then put the painting on the floor, the canvas on the floor underneath it. And then I pull it over to myself, wrap it around my chest, and um, I stabilize myself with my toes on the floor. And that way I can reach the middle of the canvas. And to, to move around it, I move the canvas um, underneath me.
0: Well, I love that, and you're getting a nice core workout. So that's wonderful. Double uh, tasking that's there, true. excellent. That's so, true. <laughs> well, going back to the painting. So, so now you've applied, and I think you have a nice video of this on your website as well. It looks like a trowel. It almost looks like you're painting a cake, uh, spreading this goop out. And the goop at this point is kind of, if I'm not mistaken, kind of gray, kind of milky looking. Is that right? Like it doesn't look like a bright color. It's my point. Yeah,
1: that's that's a that's a tricky part. So, the uh, the color of the rock is the color you see it before it goes on the canvas, and and the color it is when it's dry, so to speak, or cured. Mm-hmm. And I, I mix the the gravel with acrylic polymer emulsion, and that's that's how I paint with it. So it's I'm painting with a solid, but for the time being, it's malleable. You know, it's spreadable.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and when it goes on uh, at that point, the polymer emulsion makes the color really milky looking, r- really pale. Yeah. So I have to sort of look past it to think about the color that it's going to be based on the color that it was before I put it in the emulsion. Uh, so that, that's that's tricky sometimes. If I make a mistake, it it comes out in a way that I didn't plan and. I have to well throw it away at that point.
0: Really, there's no there's no going back. There's no I don't know, sand it out, chip it out. What what options could there be?
1: No, you really you can't remove it from the canvas once it's on there. And once it's cured and, and hard, you can't paint with it, meaning you can't move it around. So at that point it's it's fixed.
0: Well, see, that would be a little bit challenging and scary to me to think that I you know, I gravitate towards mediums that I can always like, ah, sand it off or, oh, I'll paint over it or whatever. But the, uh, the yeah. permanence of this is kind of a lot. That's a weight. But so yeah. when it's still in the drying phase, can you carve into it or etch or what, what kinds of things can you do it with it? then?
1: Yeah, before it cures, it's it's soft and, and um, I'll scratch into it with the side mm-hmm. of the trowel that I'm using or a, a nail or a stick.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I've made a bunch of tools for myself over the years that I used to both apply it and also to draw into it Yeah. while, while it's still soft.
0: Yeah, nice.
1: Yeah, so the, when it cures, all those scratches remain.
0: Yeah, mm. and they, they look like history. I mean, they really do almost mm. have a kind of cave painting quality to them that looks like over time that they've been added and it's eroded a little bit and something else has happened on top, which I find yeah, fascinating. Yeah. That exposed history, yeah. Well, and so you have a lot of symbols and references in the work. It looks like things that almost feel like hieroglyphics or language and animals or birds, things like that. Talk to us about that. What are those about for you?
1: Well, um, like I I mentioned earlier, I'm sort of an amateur student of metaphysics and ancient cultures and that sort of thing. So... I've appropriated some symbolism from, from those areas that, and I use that quite a bit. I also use uh, a lot of what look like text characters, you know, um, numerical and alphabetical text characters. And some of these are, you know real alphabets, and some of them are just characters that I make up, and, and that's because I use the character mainly for its graphical nature rather than the letter it is, for example, or the number it is. Uh, for example, if you think of a a number three, right, a three is the same as an M, same as a W, same as an E, yeah. depending on how you turn it around, and uh, whichever direction that is pointed, it has a different reaction, you know, on the page, yeah. it feels different, and so... I use characters in in that way, and um, you're you're right. I, I I create a character, and then through the process of painting, it can be completely erased or partially erased. So, by the time the painting's done, there is the history of this dialogue or conversation that's gone on while the painting's developed, mm-hmm. and you can see parts of that history in the finished piece.
0: Why do you think we like you know? So, f- for example, hieroglyphics. I can't read them. I don't, you know, maybe if I had somebody's translation nearby, I could make something out, but I'm happy to stare at it for long periods of time. And the same with sort of gibberish in between language. Why do you think that fascinates us to to keep looking at it, to try to find meaning from it?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I think you could probably say part of that is just because we're we're human. And a certain symbol will cause us to react the same way, regardless of what time we lived in, what country we come from, what language we speak. Um, It it speaks to something that's common to all of us just because we're human. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In fact, in some ancient symbols, you'll notice that uh, the use of the exact same symbol is the same. For different cultures that were that existed in different parts of the world, and at that time didn't have a physical way of interacting at all, but the same symbol has the same use Isn't in those that cultures.
0: Fascinating. I mean, that's yeah. That's, it does make you think. Okay, there's something bigger here than just someone giving it a certain connotation. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm
0: curious. So, like, do, well, first of all, do you keep a sketchbook?
1: I keep lots of sketchbooks. I'm kind of a notebook junkie. I have notebooks in my car. I have notebooks on a kitchen table. I have notebooks by my bed. My studio is filled with notebooks. They're everywhere.
0: What kind of things do you keep in your notebooks? Some people, they're color swatches. Some people, they're drawings. What what are they for you?
1: It's all of the above. It's, it's um, uh, notes that I take from books that I'm reading or... Uh, things that I'm hearing or ideas that that just come to me, um, and sketches, a lot, a lot of sketches, color studies, but also you'll find just day to day stuff like grocery lists and things like that.
0: You don't try to separate the two parts of your life out in that way.
1: No, it's all. It's a notebook's kind of like a time capsule, yeah, from two, two, peri- two periods of time, yeah. Two dates on the calendar, rather.
0: Well, and I know you you were generous enough to show me some images of your sketchbooks or your your journals or books, or what you call them. <laughs> and I I don't I was interested because there were there was more writing in it than I see from some visual artists. I know I tend to put more writing in mine, so I found that really interesting. Um, mm. That connection. Do you have a, a practice like a certain time of day that you like to work in your journals or sketchbooks, whatever you call them, or how do, how does that work into your life?
1: I don't my routine is really pretty random. You know, I I've, I've tried to structure my day into phases and it just doesn't work. So, my my happy place is to be everywhere at once.
0: <laughs> right. I feel like I've tried sort of everybody's suggestions at different times and it's like, Meh, you know, whatever today is, I'll tell you what kind of version I'm, <laughs> I'm working yeah, on, and yeah. which of those. <laughs> well, and uh, but I've heard you also talk about that in addition to these um tangible sketchbooks you are relying on the ipad quite a bit these days talk to us about that oh
1: yeah um i discovered the ipad a few years ago and it it really changed the way i i work quite a bit um i i really like the way that i can plan a painting by starting with a sketch change the colors and with the use of the layers and in the application i can can um do A, B, C comparisons. You know, what if I do this in blue or red or, you know, or, or so on. And then as I'm working on a painting and I'm trying to work out a a certain problem area, I'll take a photograph of the painting with the iPad and then pull it into the, the painting application and make some edits and decide which way to go with it. Um, so it's, it's really spontaneous for, yeah. for me, and, and uh found it to be a very useful tool. And since since I've had the iPad, maybe that's when so many drawings left the sketchbook and mm-hmm. are on the iPad now, and the sketchbook became mostly notes. I hadn't thought about that, but that could yeah. be one reason.
0: Which program do you use or app for your… It is
1: Procreate.
0: Procreate. And so do you keep versions of those um, different iterations of a painting, or what do you do with that?
1: I guess the answer is yes. I do keep them, but uh, there's no real intention in that. Uh, in that, it just accumulates on the iPad.
0: I suppose that's one downside to digital sketchbooking, if you will. Is that at least with a tangible book, it's a, for me a lot easier to go back and kind of look kind of randomly through thoughts, ideas whereas I feel like with digital copies I have to make a much more intentional sit down and go find the files and and look at it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I, I in fact I sometimes I'll I'll print out an image from the iPad and paste it into my sketchbook.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that why, makes sense. Why am I
1: doing that? I don't know.
0: Well, but maybe for what I just said, you know, it does make it a little more accessible for future musings maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But I do like, and, and now that I've listened to you talk more about the process with the rock and how kind of unforgiving it is, having the ability to work through those iterations on the iPad, it's probably really important and valuable to you because it saves you from making some of those mistakes that then. Exactly. Out.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yep.
0: Well, so I'm curious. Let's go back a little bit. I know you were um, born in and around, uh, is it the Pittsburgh area?
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: So tell us a little bit about Young Bob. Was Young Bob into rocks, art? What was Young Bob into? Uh,
1: young Bob grew up in a, a suburb of Pittsburgh called McKeesport and um, was back when the steel industry was really in in full bloom. You know, I remember everywhere you went around my hometown, you'd see Molten steel as you could see in into the steel mills from the street and and smoke and the noise of industry everywhere so now when i go when I find an area like that, there aren't many of them anymore, but when I pass an area like that, it's kind of romantic for me to to see all that, yeah. that dirt and noise and yeah. everything um, but um in in terms of of the arts i I didn't have an art exposure at home uh, at all. Uh, But when I was in in grade school, there was some sort of program in the Pittsburgh area that would uh, somehow identify students uh, and invite them to attend uh, fine art classes at Carnegie Institute, which was held in the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in in Pittsburgh. Uh, So I was somehow selected for that. And, uh, participated in that program all through, um, uh, elementary school and middle school, uh, going to those fine art classes on, on Saturdays, I think it was called the Tama Shanter program. Um, and then when, when that ended about the time that I was going into high school, I was invited from there to study fine art at Carnegie Mellon university where I went at night and on, on weekends all through through high school. So by the by the time I came of age, so to speak, I was very comfortable in an artist's skin. And that was sort of my, you know, how I viewed myself.
0: But that's interesting. Like, so in high school at a time where most of us are very conscious of our social arrangements and what friends think and do and what friends think of us. So you were spending, you're saying, many of your evenings and weekends going off to Carnegie Mellon to to do artwork. That's right. And so, how did that feel? Like it was that? What did your friends think of that?
1: They knew that i that I did it, um, but uh, there wasn't a lot of sharing of it, so so to speak, going back and forth. But I I had all the other aspects of childhood too. I hung out with the guys and, and, you know, we played hockey and sat around and teased each other and all that stuff yeah. that you do as a kid. Yeah, All
0: the great stuff. from that. Yeah. <laughs> So, so now you are finished with high school. What comes next?
1: Oh, so um, when I got out of high school, I, I um, thought that the natural progression was to go into fine art at the university level. You know, even though I was taking classes at Carnegie Mellon, I didn't accumulate any credits because I wasn't matriculated. In order to be matriculated, you have to have a high school diploma, and I didn't have that. And so um, all those classes didn't count toward anything, toward, toward a degree at that point. But um, at the time, uh, my father, who was a, a steelworker, was, was very focused on... Uh, whether I would be employed after I got out of school and, um, yeah. very strongly encouraged, so to speak, me to, uh, take a different path than, than fine art in school, which, um, which I, which I did begrudgingly. And at, at that time, this was, um, you know, I got out of high school in 1977 and, um, the country was, was in a recession at that point, And, things really weren't that going that well in, in in America. And to get a a good paying steady job when you got out of school, you needed two things. You needed a an engineering degree and a pulse. So <laughs> I had one, so I, I
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just one step away yeah. here from a good future. Well, you know, for a brief moment I want to go back cuz I was thinking about your dad when you were saying that. And now as a parent, I maybe see it slightly different than I used to back in those days and I you know sometimes I think a lot of us have a similar background of um, either not having the exposure to the arts or maybe not a supportive um, group of folks around us but sometimes I I, in retrospect now I think it's not so much uh, something against the arts as it is a fear for what the future will be if you don't have this security in something else you know and so it's not so much that the world hates artists or thinks that art isn't valuable but it's a fear of but i love you so much i want you to make i want to make sure you can support yourself or you can have a good life and i i meaning the person who has no experience with art don't know how that could possibly be in the arts and so it's you know, and now, like for me, I know I'm constantly any whether it's my daughter or, or younger folks. It's like you absolutely can have a future in the arts, but there are there's some caveats. There are some extra things you're going to need to learn to do on your own, and you know that gets into sort of an entrepreneurial mindset and business skills and things like that. But I think back then, particularly without having access to a lot of that, I think it was fear probably for a lot of our support groups that didn't want us to go that route. So you were getting that message. So off to the electrical engineering classes you go, is that right?
1: Yep, yep. I got a um, bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and then started working. And while I was working at my first job, I got my master's degree in electrical engineering at night.
0: And so like during that time period, was there still artwork going on in your life or what happened to it?
1: You know, I, I was a pretty angry young man at, at that point. And, and really it was because... Um, well, I, in my own reflection, you know, I, I really saw myself in an artist 's skin and not yeah. in this this other skin that that I took on for all the reasons you just mentioned you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, so i i for for a long, long time, I tried to maintain both as as best I could yeah. um, there wasn 't much studio work going on at in, in at the start but as I went through life it um there was more and more studio work as the opportunity presented itself then I had kids and then it went back the other way and
0: <laughs> right and so like even even before kids where was this studio well where was this art being made or how? Like if you've got to be I don't know any electrical engineering job that isn't just completely all consuming and demanding. So how were you fitting in this extra space for art?
1: Yeah, it's tough. You know, as, as you said a moment ago, especially in, in America, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to be an artist, quote unquote, you know, you have to have some other way of maintaining the, 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 income you need for, for life. So you have some some other job in, in parallel with it, yeah. and um, those people that uh, those artists that take jobs like like uh, in in coffee shops and restaurants and, and and things like like that, it's it's just as difficult for them, but they know when the workday ends and when it begins. Yeah. If you have a professional position like an engineer or like an attorney, yeah. <laughs> um, or th- that that sort of thing, you, you don't know when the day is going to end, and, right. and it make, makes it even harder. So, as a result, you know, in the long term, what happens is you you don't really have a proper weekend. You spend the weekend stealing away studio time. Uh, you don't have proper vacations. You, you you spend your vacations in in the studio. Try to take days off here and there to to work in the studio, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't because you can't flip the creative switch on and off. You know, right. it, it it's a bulb that glows dimly and brightly as as it sees fit.
0: I think that's a really important point. In fact, just last night, my daughter, who's more involved in the performing arts, and she's young, she's still finishing up college, but she's in that stage struggling to okay. She's working a full time job over the summer okay, I have a day off, I need to go create. But it's like you said, you don't just push a button and like, okay, I'm creating, here I am, you know. And so as a as a full-time working artist, I know the about, you know, I just show up every day and whether I'm in the mood for it or not, I do something, I keep always doing that. But I have the luxury of every day showing up. So if I have an off day or if I'm not really feeling it, I do something and it eventually adds up but what you know what do you do when you only have those two hours that one day what is it and gosh how to work through that um kind of demoralizing when you have a not very productive creative day during that time any thoughts on that yeah
1: it makes it hard on the uh the people around you you know that that are trying their best to support this this habit you've got and, <laughs> um, and say, sorry, sorry, I'm not going to go go visit the family this weekend. I r- really want to work in the studio. And then at the end of the weekend, well, what did you do? And, well, I don't really have anything to show for it.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. great.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that's where kind of a journaling practice or just some way of documenting Kind of helps reassure you that it does accumulate, that even those off days lead up to something. But in the moment, they can just feel so like, wow, I really did. I just threw away my one little moment of time here. But Yeah, it does. So for you, like during that phase, were you working with rock or were you using more traditional medium? Early on,
1: I was using more traditional medium. And it was probably around um, the beginning of the, the 1990s that I started to explore these other materials when I was looking for a way to paint that I that I felt was more meaningful for what I was painting about um, and something that more aligned with just me and, and who I am um, that's where I stumbled upon this process that I that I have today so it's been a long time since I've been painting this way now it hasn't always been the exact same technique it's evolved over the years but um, it has to, right? Things can't be the same for very long.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm curious, as, a, as an electrical engineer in the jobs that you held for that, was there an experimentation component to it or development? Or, or what kind of role were you usually playing in that field?
1: There, there were times where my role was very technical and other times where it was very managerial. Other times where it was... Um, more hands on and other times where it was more just conceptual and writing speaking those those sort of things, so it changed a lot.
0: were there parts of that of that time as an electrical engineer that you really that you really enjoyed or that were meaningful to you
1: later the the latest years of of my career I finally found peace with it because i I found um a way that I could be creative, you know, at, at work as, as well as when I was doing my other work, uh, and that's when it when it felt the best.
0: What might that be? Like, what was being creative in the engineering field like? Uh,
1: I was working with some some industry groups uh, th- that were were coming up with recommended best practices, so to speak, for uh, how to do certain certain things in the field. And, um, by participating it that way, it allowed me to sort of write about things and, and explain it to other people, publish papers, speak at conferences, that sort of thing. Um, that felt a lot better than, than things I was doing earlier in my career, but, but long story short, it's, it's, it's a very conflicted existence where you, you always feel like you're cheating something else. You know, you have have a some other place you're supposed to be at every moment of the day, uh, so that that makes it difficult.
0: Well, our listeners may have realized we are talking about Bob as the electrical engineer in past tense, and that's a pretty new verb shift, um, if you will. And so, tell us about that transition. That's when when did you take down the shingle as an electrical engineer and um, put up a full-time artist shingle
1: yeah officially it was uh the beginning beginning of june this yeah. year that i quote-unquote retired so to speak yay yes. yeah yeah so so now i'm able to uh devote all of my time to my studio practice and uh, uh the level of activity hasn't declined a bit i've been extremely busy and uh, barely noticed that I had any sort of a major life change mm-hmm. at all. And I just kept running.
0: Well, let's talk about that process because I know there are, first of all, there are a lot of listeners who dream of the day that they will be able to do that or are mm-hmm. contemplating it and kind of wondering where they are on that um, continuum. So for you, at what point and how did you start contemplating, you know what, maybe I will just leave being an engineer? How did that start for you? Well,
1: as you said, I've I've, I've contemplated it for a long, long time, and, and always recognized this this uh, conflicting existence that I had wearing these two different skins uh, every day. But uh, maybe about five or six years ago, I started to realize some commercial success from my studio practice.
0: And how did that come about?
1: Well. I'm not sure exactly what caused it. I, I think uh, uh, my work was just finally discovered or presented to, uh, to the public in, in a different way. But um,
0: I know you've told me you were very prolific in applying to whether it was juried shows, things like New American Paintings, and were selected. Um, it sounds like that was very intentional, and you put a lot of effort into that to me.
1: Yeah, I did. I've always worked hard, even though I didn't have a whole lot of time to work in my studio practice. I've always worked hard at it and tried really hard to get exposure and and recognition. So like a lot of young emerging artists do, applied for every show that I could find, every publishing opportunity that I could find and um, uh, applied to New American Paintings you know, a, a couple of times. Uh, I think the second time I was, was in that book, I got a call from a gallerist here in Atlanta where I live. Um, uh, his name is Alan Avery. And he, the gallery is Alan Avery Art Company. And um, he, he called on the phone and, and said, this is Alan Avery. Uh, is this your work in new American paintings? I, says, yeah. I said, yeah. So then you live in Atlanta and I said, yeah.
0: See, I would have already thought it was a joke at that point. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, when I me, ha, <laughs> ha, ha. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and, he, and he said, well, why don't I know you? And I said, well, why, I don't know. <laughs> he said, well, why, why don't you come in and talk to me? And, and that, that's how it all started. So I, I credit Alan for sort of finding me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave me my, my first uh, long-term serious exposure in a gallery and, um, uh, that didn't get off to a great start either. It took a long time for, for that to really bear fruit.
0: Why Why do you say it didn't get off to a good start? Like what was rocky about it?
1: Well, the, the, the work just didn't sell briskly, you know, for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of a, a sale here and there, maybe two, three, four paintings a year sold. But, um.
0: And from a gallery standpoint, how would how would he interact with you about that?
1: He was very patient with me. Um, uh, he he recognized the things going on in my life, you know, the the pressures that I had with my day job, so to speak, and also as a as a young parent at, at that time. And um, long story short, he just stuck with me and watched me grow and and. Um, stayed with me through all the changes in in, in my work as it developed uh, through the years. And uh, I think it's borne fruit for both of us over the last uh, five or six years or so.
0: And I'm curious, like, as you were evolving your your style and your work, because I think some artists worry about this when they consider um, working with a gallery, is that the gallerist is going to have a significant input in either what your style is or isn't, or either discouraging you from changing or wanting you to change to something that is more marketable. Did you encounter any of that?
1: No, I've never had that experience with with a gallerist so far. Um, I've I've had gallerists who um, have said, uh, "Well, what we sell mostly is more like this, yeah. and your work is more like that." And
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, okay, and yeah. maybe this isn't the place for me. Right,
0: <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But uh, I, I haven't had a gallerist that tried to influence what I'm doing. They they give feedback, but never tried to to influence me
0: yeah well it's like i've told people like there's plenty of artists out there who do whatever it is they have the galleries might have in mind so it may be that it's not a fit with you but it doesn't mean you need to change your style (laughs) you know that one doesn't necessarily
1: that's exactly right Yeah. yeah yeah if you go gallery hopping in any city where you live you'll see they're they're all somewhat different
0: right right how did it evolve from you from that one gallery to to now having multiple uh, exposures around the country. Well,
1: I um, you know I I kept working at it and and didn't stop trying to get exposure uh, for for my work even beyond the the gallery that that I was with. There, there was a period for a while that I really just sort of leaned on this one gallery um, as being good enough, and that was a comfortable position for me. But re- recognized fairly quickly that. I was getting too comfortable with that and could do more. So, um, just kept trying and, um, uh, things just began blossoming for me over the last five or six years. I've got a, a lot of good press from different, uh, periodicals. Um, now with five different galleries, um, and I get calls from others, but, uh, There's only so much you can do.
0: Right. Well, actually, that brings up an interesting point um, because it it struck me just even looking at your website, which is lovely and it has a wonderful curation to it. But you have done a lot of good publicity, like having a lot of good articles, interviews, um, podcasts, things like this. But how do those come about for you? Because I think the other artists are always sort of like, well, how did did that even happen?
1: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Um, Some of it has happened just by myself beating the bushes, like the way I found you, you know, I was listening to your podcast and uh, then happened to notice that you're looking for, for other lab rats. for.
0: <laughs> and, and I will say from my end, um, it was very genuine, you clearly from your email had listened, it wasn't just a form letter, like, I'd like to be on your podcast. And so it was very genuine. And Honestly, so uh, it's like I always tell folks, if you're doing something that's going to save somebody else's job, work uh, level, load for something they need, then offer it to them. The worst they can do is say no, but offer it to them. And so like in this case, great. I found this great he found me this great artist it's fascinating he sends me images before i barely even ask it's everything i could ever hope for you know if if i could clone and have a million bobs i would (laughs) yeah so but you you've had some really great uh publicity and articles and i think you're right like all of that sort of starts to feed on itself maybe and then that's how others find you and it there's a level level of legitimacy then to you that gives those um new introductions comfort so i can see
1: yeah so there was there was some of that and also you know when i recognized that the um the the engineering work was going to be coming to an end really soon i i got the sense that i needed to kind of up my game and 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 uh get more polished and professional in my studio practice and i i found a a, a PR agency, you know, that, that specialized in, in the arts and uh, con- connected with them. And they, they really help help quite a bit. They're responsible for redesigning my website for me and, and helping me get some other press and, and um, they, they, they've been just fantastic. I can't say enough about them.
0: Do you want to share the name of the agency? The
1: agency is PR for Artists.
0: There you go. Yeah, easy Really to hard to remember. Was it, was it uncomfortable to, to work? Was that like an easy thing to do with bringing in sort of an outside voice, outside help to work on these things? You know, because so often we're told as artists like, oh, it needs to be your voice, whether it's on social media or your website. But the truth is there is just so only so much of me that can go around. And at some point, you always feel like you've got to bring in some outside help. So how was that using or relying on outside help for some of that?
1: Uh, They made it, this particular agency made it very easy for me. Um, They they formed a team for me. One part of the team would help me with the website another part help with social media accounts and would sort of guide me through what I was doing well and what I was doing not so well. Uh, So I learned a lot through them. And then uh, another part of the team would help me with gallery outreach and, and, things like that so it was sort of a 360 degree package where they helped and in that sense it was uh it was very easy they they tried hard to uh replicate my voice in my social media postings and and that sort of thing and they've they've done a good job at that
0: well you have some exciting shows coming up um out in california in the la area tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah, I have my first uh, West Coast solo show coming up July 16th oh, is the opening exciting. at BG Gallery in Santa Monica.
0: Will you go out for the opening?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'll be going out next week. Nice. Nice. Yep.
0: And will there be an artist talk or do you have other things that you're doing as part of that opening?
1: There is a uh, VIP reception um, the afternoon of the opening, then uh, more uh, proper opening that that evening. I have a um, an Instagram live interview that's going to take place, I believe, August third now, um, and sometime during that show, I'm going to have the Genesis drop of my first NFT on Super Rare.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Let's talk about that because that's exciting and mm-hmm. everybody's buzzing about it. So, first of all, how did that kind of come to be, and what's involved in leading up to that moment?
1: Well, you know, I was.
0: When, when the NFT
1: thing, you know, became a thing, I was uh, trying to figure it all out. You know, and
0: well, you're an engineer, of course you were. That's why we're asking you. <laughs> figure it out for the rest of us.
1: You know, it, 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 it's uh, doing an NFT and having it minted and and all that is just so complicated, in in my opinion. Mm. There's so much infrastructure to learn about and new. New language and new terms, a different community to to participate in. Um, it, it's it's really quite a shift from a traditional brick and mortar thing. But more fundamentally, I was wondering, does this mean anything to my work? You know, because because yeah. at one point I was sort of looking at my work as going from the cave wall to the gallery wall. Right. Oh,
0: I was just about to say, particularly your work, given the physicality, this sort alchemist change of matter to liquid back to matter, now to digital. Like, is so is that maybe that's where our earth, our world is going? Talk to me about that. Yeah.
1: Well, th- that's the part I was wrestling with. You know, th- does this yeah. does this have a role in in my work? Does it does it mean something? And and uh, eventually, I came to the the position that it it does, because it's you know, from where I started from the cave wall to the gallery wall. Now I'm going from earth to the ether, from the cave wall to the beyond. cloud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, was super rare in particular. There's a, there's a curatorial hurdle that has to be cleared, so, so to speak. And it could take a long time. Um, To get accepted by super rare but i was fortunate enough to that uh one of their curators sort of fell in love with my work and and thought it it had an important role to play um so that's that's how it all went down so i'm still figuring it out
0: and so what happens on the day of an nft drop or i don't even know is that the right lingo i'm so uncool
1: yeah yeah they have your your genesis drop There's. A lot of PR uh, around that event it, itself, um, but I it, best I can tell when you get right down to it, it's it's uh, just an, a, a minting of your your NFT and it goes up for sale and and you're taking bids on it on, on on that day, like you will subsequent NFTs after your genesis drop.
0: So, are you already thinking about that in terms of? what will come next, what, what yes. will follow this one?
1: Yep, yep. Yeah, worked a, a lot on exactly what the genesis drop would be. Um, we worked, uh, a, a, another part of my team with PR for Artists um, helped me work on animating uh, still mm-hmm. images of, of my paintings, which was very difficult because, A, they're, physical paintings are not digital with different layers that can be separated from other elements in the same image. It's all just one flat image. But then also given that the surface itself is little tiny grains of, of solid material it's extremely difficult to do any sort of animation on it, but we Hmm. we actually accomplished a a good bit with that. But in the end can't kind of came full circle to, to thinking that, animation isn't really necessary for my work. And actually, it was the curator at uh, Super Rare that had that suggestion. She said, you are just mint your work as it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, to me, there is a part of it that, again, kind of coming from the cave wall, this solidness, that turning it into animation almost... Feels disingenuous a little bit at some level to me, but but mm-hmm. I'm sure that's part of the evolution of deciding, or maybe that's how it needs to evolve. And I guess that'll be something you keep revisiting and deciding. Yeah, who knows? That iPad, about. that iPad may play another role yet, still in terms of some of the layers mm-hmm. and experimentation. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Right? Who knows? Wow, that's really exciting. Well, so we will. Um, Do you already have a link to when that will happen? Or how can folks join in and and follow along with that? Uh,
1: For the NFT, the best thing to do is just follow me on Twitter. Okay. Um, Okay. uh, Don't know the exact date of the Genesis drop yet. It'll be sometime this month, I believe.
0: You know, actually, I wanted to go back for just a second. You were talking about, you know, this shift both from... um, the engineering life, into being a full-time painter. And then really, too, even when you're talking about working with a soul gallery and then realizing you need to expand. So this idea of kind of always having to go past your comfort zone. The minute we get to a spot that like, ah, there, I figured it out finally. I feel like as artists, we're almost always then that's the time to shift yet again. And part of it, this may be on my brain because I just got the email this morning that my, my main working space is probably going to need to change here pretty soon and so it's like okay here's here's a moment (laughs) it's got it's got some lead time and i was already thinking so you know rather than maybe feeling that as a negative um accepting it for okay it's the next level it's the next step but i'd love to hear you talk about that because i think everyone no matter what phase you are with your art journey um there's there's always that next step that feels uncomfortable that's just right around the corner
1: yeah yeah that's well said um I think part of being a creative is is, you know, recognizing that you're out over your ski tips a little bit all all the time, and um, uh, you can't get too comfortable in in what you're doing, or the work becomes stale, and you, you you don't want it to be stale ever. You didn't start to do it because you wanted to do something stale. Okay.
0: And it shows, it shows through when you feel that it's stale, it always shows yeah. through. I, mean, I don't know how or why, I don't, I don't understand that, but it always shows Yeah, if
1: you're seeing it yourself, surely others are feeling it too. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, any words of advice uh, before we wrap up for today for someone who's contemplating maybe a big change and hoping for a, a full-time life as an artist?
1: Oh boy. That's, that's, that's a big one. I don't, I don't.
0: Or is that a, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? I've never decided like whether to tell folks, Oh really, you know, aim for that or no. Like sometimes it's be good with what you got. It's, it serves a purpose too. Yeah. It's, it's such
1: a, a personal decision. You know, it, it really is, especially in, in America, it's hard to be a, a, an artist um, because of all these other things you have to put in place on your own and, um, just to get started. So, um, in in my case, I, w- I was very angry about the the way that I got started. But in the end, uh, in retrospect, I, r- I realized it had some some benefits. I had access to resources I wouldn't have had if I would have followed my own plan. Um, so um, everyone's situation is different, but hopefully, you can find a way to come to peace with it all and still be creative. Yeah.
0: And tap into those experiences because that's that's the thing I find most with these interviews is that even if it was not your intended or ideal path, there's something along the way that made you a better artist, made you the artist you are today, and without that, you wouldn't have what you've got now. And yeah. So it's recognizing, coming to peace with it. I like the way you say that, so... Well, Bob, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we can't wait for your show to open and to hear more about that.
1: Thanks very much. It's been fun. Thanks for everything you do.
0: Well, that wraps it up for us today. You can find Bob's fascinating paintings on his website at boblandstrom.com. That's B-O-B-L-A-N-D-S-T-R-O-M.com. And you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Bob Landstrom Art. I love Bob's curiosity, sense of adventure, and determination. Despite giving much of his time to a demanding engineering career, he never stopped carving out time for his art practice. In a prior conversation, Bob made the comment to me, once you have the creative animal in you, it has to be fed. I love that image. That your creative animal is this separate, wild creature that lives alongside you. And it is your responsibility to make sure your animal has food, and wide open spaces to run wild. Julia Cameron refers to artist playdates to feed your creative soul. But I'm liking this idea of taking my pet creative beast out on a regular outing. I think my creative beast looks a bit like a griffin crossed with the chimera, minus the goat head protruding from its back, so basically a flying lion? I don't know. What does your creative beast look like? Whatever it looks like, make sure to take him out, feed him, and let him run wild. Until next time, stay kind, stay positive, and keep swimming.